Hi everyone and welcome to episode 92 of SAMA, a program which invites an expert to talk about their area of expertise. And this week we are delighted to have Dr. David Hanscom as our guest expert on this week's episode of SAMA. David's been on a previous episode, number 70, if you wish to view that. But David is a board-certified orthopaedic surgeon specialising in complex spine problems in all areas of the spine. He has expertise in adult and paediatric spinal deformities, such as scoliosis and kyphosis. A significant part of his practice is devoted to performing surgery on patients who have had prior spinal surgeries. He works for the Swedish Neuroscience Specialist in Seattle, and we are so blessed to have him with us today. Welcome to our show, David. It's fantastic to have you back. Yeah, thank you, Nick. I really appreciate the opportunity to share my views. By the way, I don't think I told you this, but since I talked to you last, I retired from spine surgery last December okay. to pursue this project full-time. Fantastic. Well, this is um, wonderful. Why are you so passionate for this type of work? Was there any, anything, any event in your life that put you into this direction? Well, I can work backwards a little bit. I think what's driven me the last five years is that we have watched hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free. I think last time we discussed anxiety in detail. Yes. Turns out anxiety is the pain. Anxiety is just a sensation generated by the body's stress chemicals. And unfortunately for humans, compared to other animals, one of the threats that we, we face are our thoughts. Yes. And animals don't have to escape their thoughts. Humans cannot escape their thoughts. We have this adrenaline level, cortisol levels that are sustained, and we get sick and we feel anxious. By decreasing body stress chemicals, anxiety drops, physical symptoms drop. It turned out that the mental pain is a bigger problem than the physical pain because the mental threats translate into body chemical changes, which translates into physical symptoms, including the feeling of anxiety. Right. The problem is you decrease the body chemistry, decrease the stress chemicals, anxiety goes away, but also the physical symptoms go away. It's quite simple. And what's happened, we've just watched hundreds hundred and hundreds of patients go to pain-free with extremely simple self-directed tools. And at the same time, I watch more and more aggressive spine surgery being done the last five years. And what we're doing, we're doing these procedures in the form of spine fusions, one level, two level, eight level, 14 level fusions that have no data at all to back them up. Whereas the treatments that actually solve chronic pain have been documented with hundreds of research papers. I would see three to five patients every week that have had major surgery done or recommended on relatively normal spines, no rehab done. The data shows only 10% of surgeons actually acknowledge the variables that affect outcomes. And our team became incredibly skilled at getting people better. At the same, at the same time, the culture of medicine has become more and more aggressive in performing surgery. About a year ago, I saw a kid become paraplegic that just didn't need surgery. Gosh. And I just said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I made a decision that day to retire, which it took about a year to actually pull it off. I also made the decision to pursue getting these basic, these aren't new concepts, by the way. What I'm trying to get out into the world has actually been documented in thousands of research papers. But somehow mainstream medicine is simply ignoring the data. Yes. We're ignoring... I gave two lectures back east, basically showing that we're pretending to perform medicine. In other words, almost every treatment that we have covered by insurance and that we quote are productive at 
in spine care, I'll just talk about spine care specifically, have been documented to be ineffective. And the effective treatment, which are ways of decreasing body stress chemicals and a lot of other things that are pretty basic, have been documented to be effective, simply aren't covered by insurance. And right now, what we're doing, we're actually pretending to do medicine. We're offering out treatments that have been proven not to work. We also know the way you induce depression is that you repeatedly dash hopes. That's been shown in animal studies. You go to your doctor with the idea that you're going to be helped. You're given treatments that have been shown not to work. They're expensive. Then we get into spine surgery. It's risky. You're You're being offered an expensive, risky treatment. Hopes are raised. Then they're dashed, often with catastrophic results. Yes. That's the classic way to induce a depression is repeatedly dashing hopes. Yes. I, I couldn't do that anymore. I just had to get out. Gosh. Gosh. So what's the role of a family? How can a family help if someone has a problem with their spine or possibly other um, health issues? Well, what happens is that Anytime you're anxious or frustrated, that means you've been triggered. Yes. In other words, a current situation resembles something from the something from the past that was threatening. Yes. The way we all survive, if you look at my cat, for instance, if I have to do some threatening move once, or she meets one person that she doesn't like, guess what? When that person shows up again, my cat's not going to like it, right? When we're anxious or frustrated, there has to be a reason why that occurred, because something in our past just got triggered by the current moment. Yes. The families, by far and away, are the deepest triggers. Again, anxiety is is a sensation generated by the body's stress chemicals. Yes. And when you're triggered, by definition, there's a threat. Your body secretes stress chemicals in an effort to ensure survival. Yes. And since your triggers were put in place by your prior family, they play out in your new family and play out in your kids and your partners. And what we found out that we can engaged with all these different medical treatments that have been proven to be effective and they've worked well, but we didn't understand why some people just didn't get better very quickly or refused to engage. But the research shows that the family is by far and away the deepest trigger. For example, there's one research study which is quite clear that they took 105 couples, these are all married, they put monitors on both the spouse and the person in pain when the person in pain would complain about their pain, there was a predictably hostile response in their spouse. And it occurred, guess what, every time. It wasn't occasionally the spouse get upset. It was every couple, every time. That was, that was remarkable in itself to me. Then the spouses quit believing that the person in pain really is in pain, because again, the doctors haven't found anything, right? Mm-hmm. The patient doesn't feel believed by the medical field, by the colleagues, by the friends, but also their family doesn't believe them anymore either. They complain about their pain, grab their knee, grab their arm, grab their neck. Then there's a predictably hostile response from the spouse. Then the monitors show that the pain predictably went up. And it lasted for three hours. But what was really fascinating about the study is that the spouses kept complaining. Why isn't that fascinating? You and I would both know that, right? (laughs) Right. Well, we found out, and then the other problem is when you're triggered, remember this is a survival reaction. So I want to just state this again. Anxiety is not a psychological issue. It's a neurochemical response that ensures your survival. You have a threat, chemical response. That's an unconscious automatic response. 
The way you decrease anxiety is you use direct ways to decrease the stress chemicals, which is mindfulness, relaxation, meditation, exercise. All those things help decrease your body's stress chemicals and decrease the feeling of anxiety. Or you can decrease the reactivity of your nervous system. In other words, when you're threatened, you have a response. And instead of having an automatic survival response, you create a little bit of a space between the stress and the response. It's called neuroplasticity. You actually stimulate your, your brain to change so it's not as reactive. Not positive thinking, which is sort of a disaster. Actually, positive thinking is a disaster, but it's positive substitution. Instead of being stress, automatic survival response, it's now stress choice response. But remember that survival response is one million times stronger than the conscious brain. It is not subject to rational control. Yes, you can't yes. control this. Mm. If you didn't have anxiety, you wouldn't survive. Then what happens, your families are the deepest triggers. Again, right from a childhood, you, in your own family, you were raised a certain way. All sorts of triggers were put into your brain. They play out in the new family. There's also a saying in neuroscience that neurons that fire together wire together. Remember that pain, and pain causes anxiety and frustration, right? And then, when, and, and then you have a chemical reaction. Yes. But when other circumstances cause anxiety and frustration, those are directly linked to the pain pathways. That's why outside stresses increase the pain. It's a direct linkage of neurological circuits, not psychological. The key to solving this problem is called neuroplasticity. Again, to decrease anxiety, decrease the body's stress chemicals. Then you can decrease your reactivity. And that's called neuroplasticity. We literally train your brain to do something different when that particular trigger happens. People try to avoid anxiety by avoiding the triggers. That doesn't work because it's very stressful avoiding the triggers. Plus, you might notice for many people as they get older, their life becomes smaller because nobody likes being anxious. We tend to avoid things that make us afraid. And it's stressful avoiding stress. The key is actually learning to process stress in a way so it's not a stress anymore. In other words, you have a different chemical response. That and, the, and so then the family issues become really key because what you're saying the family triggers, remember it goes both ways. Your family triggered you, but you triggered your family. But anyway, the role of chronic pain in the family has just been tremendous, both as far as keeping people in pain, making it worse, but also pulling people out of pain. It's been unbelievable. Most people would think the role of a family is to, um, is to help combat chronic pain, not actually cause it or be a major trigger for it. So what you're saying is quite contrary to what many people believe. That's, I think, the worst tragedy of chronic pain. Instead of your house being a place of safety, love, peace, and joy, it's a combat zone. First of all, people in pain talk about their pain all the time. They feel like they have a right to talk to their family about it particularly, but they talk to their friends, colleagues. We do a workshop their next workshops at the Omega Institute in New York. It's on my website from June 7th through 9th. It's put on by myself, daughter, and wife. My wife's a tap dancer. My daughter's a somatic arts, expressive arts therapist. And it's described sort of as an adult sandbox where people literally feel safe. Almost everybody in that workshop in the weekend go, goes to pain-free because they feel safe. The is at that workshop, we realized that people in pain talk about pain almost all the time. 
But if you're talking about the pain, where's your attention? It's on the pain, right? Right. And from a neural, if you think in terms of neuroplasticity, your brain's going to develop wherever you place its attention. You want to discuss your pain with the world, that's where your attention is. And you're actually going to reinforce it. I tell my patients all the time, you might as well just picture yourself putting your hand right into a huge hornet's nest because that's what's happening. Right. Right. The basic ground rule of the workshop is you cannot discuss your pain, you cannot discuss your medical care, and you can't complain. It's the same thing to my patients in the office. When you walk out of the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain ever again with anybody except your healthcare provider, especially your family. You can't complain. And I'm just guessing at least 60% of people, maybe 80% of people discuss their pain all the time. Also, when you're searching for a cure, which is, by the way, very understandable, you're also, your attention's on the pain. The problem, the paradox of chronic pain is, is that if you're trying to fix the pain, your attention's on the pain, you actually can't fix yourself. Because your attention's on yourself, you actually reinforce the pain circuits. The key is creating the vision of where you want to go, and then pursuing that vision with or without the pain, Paradoxically, as you develop the part of your brain that wants to live a great life, that part gets reinforced and you start leaving the pain pathways behind. It's a very paradoxical process. I want to say one more thing before I go back to the family issues is that I came up with a website post about six months ago. A metaphor really hit me is that remember, where do you perceive pain? If you didn't have a nervous system, how would you have pain? In other words, I have my hand on this table here, and it's not hot or cold. It's sort of neutral. Why is that? It's because my brain took all the sensory input and decided this is okay. Brain is an output. It's not an input. In other words, my brain has to interpret signals. They're just, they're just receptors in my hands. There's nothing that says it's hot or cold. It's the number of hot versus cold receptors that gets triggered then my brain has to unscramble and then decide whether it's dangerous or not. That's how we survive in our environment, right? Right. And that threshold changes under stress. So when your stress chemicals are up, that threshold drops dramatically. So things that weren't painful before now become painful. When you're triggered and your body's full of stress chemicals, not only do the pain circuits light up, actually, the nerve conduction doubles and you feel the pain more. When your attention's on the pain, you're actually reinforcing it, right? Right, right. That's true. The metaphor I used was learning a new language. For instance, if you're going to learn French, you go to classes, you'll read books, listen to tapes, repetition. Maybe you'll immerse yourself into the language. Let's say in five years, you can now speak fluent French. What happened to your brain? Something changed, right? Right. New neurons, new connection, new myelin, all sorts of things happen in your brain that you can now speak fluent French. You didn't learn French by avoiding speaking English. Correct? Correct. Your nervous system had a goal, or you had a goal. Your nervous system adapted to that. You now developed a part of your brain that now speaks French. It's the same thing with chronic pain is that you can't come out of chronic pain by trying to not be in pain. What you have to do is visualize and develop a vision and an execution plan of, I call the new language, an enjoyable life. 
Remember the default language is anxiety, frustration, and survival. That's our default language. The language we're trying to develop, I call it an enjoyable life. Because when we get triggered, and remember triggering anxiety, frustration is a survival chemical response that ensures our survival. You can't get rid of anxiety and frustration because that's how you survive. What you're doing is you've got a set of circuits as they become stronger and you nurture those, good food, good wine, good friends, spiritual perspective, whatever you want to develop, it's a learned skill that gets stronger with repetition. But if you're on an endless quest to be out of pain, you reinforce the pain circuits dramatically. You can't do it. What you're doing, you're engaging in practices that get your vision moving forward. I call it moving forward with your pain. You live your life, whatever way you want to live it, with or without the pain. And paradoxically, as you develop this concept of how you want your life to look, that's what happens. It's not like positive affirmation, which I, positive affirmations to me really are a big problem, but actually creating a true vision of what you want in your life and actually taking steps to develop those variables is the solution to chronic pain. By the way, the ultimate solution to chronic pain is the spiritual journey, giving back. Where's your attention? It's on other people. It's not on yourself. Play pathways. The antithesis of anger is play, right? Yes. When your body's full of play chemicals, oxytocin, the love drug, dopamine, reward drug, serotonin, antidepressant, GABA drugs like Valium, that's a heck of a chemical bath, right? That's a wonderful, beautiful chemical bath. When you're full of those play chemicals, your sense of well-being is fantastic. Going back to the family is that the family should be your place of safe haven. But when you're in pain, you're trapped, frustrated, you're very focused on yourself. The impact of pain on the family is terrible because what happens, people are frustrated and they use their family as a target. Now, a long time ago, before I became aware of the impact of pain on the family or even of the, of the nature of chronic pain, I realized that your capacity to abuse somebody depends, is inversely proportional to the connection. In other words, if I yelled at a stranger on the street, they would ignore me or yell back. If I was a rude or cash register, cash register person, then they may call the manager, but I can only say so much before I, I'm hauled off, right? If I'm with colleagues at work, I can be a certain amount of anger expressed, even directly to, towards those people. Or, or, but again, there's a limit there. If I'm the boss and I'm the employee, I have to take a certain amount more of abuse from the boss than I do a fellow employee because guess what? That person has power over me. A spouse, same thing. It's now more dependent on you and the capacity for that person or not capacity, but what happens is that spouses and partners take more abuse than somebody on the street because they're more connected to you. The ultimate dependency is your kids. That's why it's so easy and so common to abuse children because they have a very deep connection to you, very deep dependency. The people that we should be treating the best are often the people that you treat the worst. Picture a household where you come in the house, you've had a fight with a claims examiner, you've had a disappointing visit with a doctor, you've been frustrated for a long time, and anytime you're angry about anything, with pain being a big one, you've lost awareness. The essence of relationships is being aware of other people's needs. The antithesis of awareness, as you well know, is anger. You walk in the front door, you've had a bad day with your pain, 
what do you think your family is seeing when you walk through that door? It's not great, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is it's really, I, don't, I haven't done a survey, but it's really common. I, I think it's the role. And the problem is when you're angry and in pain, you feel justified to, to be that way. You can't see the effect of your behavior on the family. It is devastating. Instead of bringing the energy of peace, love, and joy, nurturing, safety into the family, you're bringing anger in, which is flat out destructive. Remember, anger is the ultimate, ultimate survival reaction. And you'll destroy anything around you to survive. That's what anger is supposed to do. This is a survival mechanism. It also destroys people around you, destroys relationships. It's a very destructive process. One of the pieces of advice I give my patients is that when you're angry, for whatever reason, don't come in the house. Just don't come home. You know, have a drink, take a walk, stay later at work. Whatever you need to do, don't come in that door until your anger has passed. The problem is when you're angry, you walk through the door, there's a process called mirror neurons that you tend to imitate. Your brain automatically imitates things that you see. For instance, when you smile at a baby, the baby smiles back, not because the baby's happy, but it's stimulated that part of the brain, right? Right. If you walk in the door of your house angry, you've now stimulated those mirror neurons in your family, and they're going to trigger you back. You get this massive ping pong game going. Then you're fighting with your partner or spouse. You're fighting with the kids. The kids are fighting with each other. And these households, I swear to God, are just hell holes. I don't know many families in chronic pain that aren't living in pure hell. It's really bad. We can do these, you know, I have a website, backincontrol.com. I wrote a book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. It's a very self-directed process that's been incredibly effective, very consistent. Probably 9% of patients go to pain for you within three to six months, some, some longer, some shorter. The only obstacle it seems to me for people getting better simply willingness to engage. And when you're angry, by the way, your chances of engaging are quite low. Anyway, there's four things I ask me. Let's just pretend you're patient. Let's pretend you're my patient right now. Okay. You're my office. You've had back pain for five years. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're the one that knows who in your family is the main target. You know, your secondary targets. You know what a good day looks like versus a bad day. And there's four things I ask the family to do. <clears throat> Number one is I want everybody in the family over 13 years old engaged in the process. I want them to read the book, look at the website. The website's a lifetime process. It's not a formula. Everybody does it completely differently. But the essence of the process is that as you calm down your nervous system, calm down the body's chemistry, and start to feel better, it's an ongoing sustaining process that has no beginning or end point to it. It's just a, just a way of living your life. But as the body chemistry improves, your sense of well-being improves, and then the mirror neuron effect goes both directions, I ask every member of the family to engage, but separately. I don't want people coaching each other. Yes. If somebody decides not to do it, that's their business. The only person you can control, of course, is yourself. Anyway, the first rule I say, look, please have everybody engage. Second rule is not, not discuss your pain, never. And I can't tell you how happy the family is when they hear that sentence. That can be <laughs> unbelievable how happy people are when we just take pain off the table. It's, it, I mean, honestly, probably 80% of the conscious time is occupied by some aspect of pain. Doctor's appointments, reading books, internet questions, 
complain about the doctors, come out their pain, you know, grabbing their back, whatever it is. So we ask them not to complain about their pain, discuss their pain, discuss medical care, or engage in pain behaviors, limping, groaning, whatever it is. The third thing we do, which is surprisingly difficult, is that we ask people to take an hour as a couple or as a family and just remember when things were really, really good. Why not? Why, why are you together? Why are you a family? Why are you still together? If you're just going home every night and fighting and quarreling, what, what's that all about? And like you said before, you, you visualize what's ironic about the human condition is that our deepest connections, which are a basic human need, are also the biggest triggers. The more intertwined you are neurologically with another person, the deeper the triggers. But we asked them to spend an hour, maybe more, but at least an hour, just take an ear of your relationship and discuss it in detail. One of the things really, really enjoyable. And it's remarkable people can't do it. I mean, why would you think that's the case? Mm. Well, the thing that sort of struck, struck me is the fact that, well, if someone does have a spinal injury, like a true, like a, 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 um, a, a, a I don't know, you, you'd better be sort of suggesting some, something as an example. Let's say they've got a ruptured um, disc between two vertebrae. It is a true physical problem, but you're asking someone to not talk about it. Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. I mean, here, here's the thing. This is really, really key to the entire conversation. It doesn't matter where the pain's coming from. So occasionally, even with structure, we, we define structural versus non-structural problems. Let's say the pain is legit. I mean, first of all, every pain is legitimate. Where the pain comes from the soft tissues, the muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, bone spur, pinch nerve, it doesn't matter where the pain is coming from, your brain still has the input. Right. If you're like right now, I'll just give you an example. I was in chronic pain myself for 15 years. Yes. And I had headaches, ringing in my ears, back pain, neck pain, all sorts of stuff. Mm. I also had extreme anxiety and the situation was intolerable. But when I talk to my patients carefully, it turns out that the anxiety is really the bigger problem. Right now I have arthritis in both hips and both knees which is quite effective. I have no cartilage. I'm bone to bone in every joint in my body as far as my, my knees. I can hardly walk some days. Actual physical pain I have now is worse than when I was in chronic pain and disabled, but I don't have the anxiety. If you have a bone spur, have sciatica, a very clear structural problem, surgery works wonderfully well. By the way, degenerated bulging disc in the spine have been documented, been documented to not be the sources of pain. Arthritis, bone spurs, degenerated disc, herniated disc, none of those cause back pain. That's been well documented. But it doesn't matter. Even patients with surgical problems, as they calm down the nervous system, improve the body's chemistry, you've changed a pain threshold and the pain still goes away. So it doesn't actually matter where the pain is coming from. Remember, every pain, all pain is completely legitimate. Once your body senses pain, there's pain. Yes. Whether there's, there's an identifiable source or not. Right. But again, as you talk about it, discuss it, and on this endless quest to solve it, you simply reinforce those circuits. Right? Yes, yes. And so your body becomes more, more sensitive to the sensation of pain. Right. Remember, it, 
Yeah, my, in my book, there's an evolution of pain. We have the source where there's muscle, tendon, ligament, or sometimes your nervous system simply short circuits. You have a pain source. Mm-hmm. Then with repetition, your brain becomes sensitized. And the analogy I use is water torture, which is a crude example, but it's just a drop of water. Why would that hurt? Why would that ever hurt? It's the repetition, right? right. And you've heard about the princess and the pea, same analogy. <laughs> but it's just simply... It's just simply the repetition. Your brain becomes sensitized. Your brain is very adaptable, very smart. The drop of water keeps coming at you. Then your body becomes sensitized to it and becomes much, much worse. They've actually done research MRI scans showing that with repetition, your brain becomes 500% more reactive within three months, 500%. And again, the more you pay attention to it, the more, more it happens. Then your brain, after about six to 12 months, what they have found, for instance, with back pain, that with back pain less than three months, there's a certain part of the brain that lights up called the nociceptive system. It's the pain center. But after 12 months, if the pain persists, the, the pain center goes completely dormant. Why would the pain go away? That part of the brain, the pain center of the brain for back pain goes completely dormant after three months, no matter what. If, if, it's, if the pain resolves, of course, pain goes away. But if the pain lasts more than three to six months, the pain center still goes dormant, but what it does, it switches over to the emotional circuits. Then what happens is that you have the same back pain, but a different driver. Does that make sense? Let's wrap my mind around this one, David. Um, it's a big one. Yeah, yeah. This one's well-documented. That okay. chronic, so the, the current neuroscience explanation of chronic pain is that it's an embedded memory. We all know about phantom limb pain. It's an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences, and the memory can't be erased. Again, once those pain circuits are lit up, you feel the pain. If you turn a light switch on, the light goes on, right? It doesn't go on at the light switch. It goes on at the light. Right. Same thing with the back pain. When your switch in the brain is on, the pain isn't in the brain. You don't have a headache. You have back pain. You had a chronic pain for 15 years. Right. And so your body would have been, your body was one was needing that pain, if you like. It became part of you. How on earth did you overcome something after having something for 15 years and rewire your brain? Well, so, that's this whole learning a new language thing. In other words, I was obsessed with the cure. Yes. I read dozens of self-help books. I saw multiple doctors. I discussed my problems with everybody that would listen. I mean, I did the whole thing. Yes. I had extreme anxiety. I went from being this fearless spine surgeon to crippling anxiety. But again, anxiety is not psychological. And what happened, it was that adrenaline drive that took me through medical school, residency fellowship, becoming a major, I mean, the spine fellowship I went to was considered top five in the world when I went. I went to a major spine care fellowship, spine deform, spine deformity fellowship. I didn't get there by being anxious. And all of a sudden, I went from no anxiety to panic attacks in one day. But okay. that adrenaline drive that drove me, remember, anxiety is, is the feeling generated by the adrenaline, all of a sudden, I had a panic attack, which is racing hearts, sweating, fast breathing. I thought I was going to pass out. Okay. I started having multiple panic attacks. And once that door got open. I'm sure Pandora's box has something to do with the metaphor. I couldn't put it back in the door. I couldn't put it back in place. I went to counseling for 13 solid years every week. Yeah. Guess what? 
my, where was my attention? I mean, at the time I thought, obviously I was desperate. I was obviously trying to do the right thing, but my attention was on those pain circuits and I was reinforcing them. Yes. What broke the circuits, by the way, was this, was accidentally picking up a book called Feeling Good by David Burns. David Burns said to start writing things down in a certain format. And for the first time in 15 solid years, after two weeks, things started to change. And by six weeks, things had changed a lot. Anxiety was down. I started to think more clearly. About six months later, I processed anger issues, not by choice. I did it poorly. But within six weeks after I crossed a really tough two-month threshold on anger, my pain disappeared. Now, if I get triggered, in other words, if I get frustrated or if I quit doing my writing exercises or I quit doing my, um, in other words, if I quit doing the things to improve my body's chemistry, my symptoms come back in about two weeks. There's 30 symptoms of a, a stressed nervous system, stressed chemical changes in your body. I had 17 symptoms at the same time. I had migraine headaches, ringing in my ear, neck pain, back pain, some stomach issues. I had burning in my feet. The skin rashes popped up, insomnia, depression, anxiety, obsessive thought patterns. All these things are symptoms of the disease. I didn't know anything about these until a lecture in 2011 by Dr. Schumer, who wrote a book called Learn Your Pain, he started listing these symptoms of a stressed nervous system. And I'm going, oh my goodness, the entire thing clicked into place in about 10 minutes. I mean, why would I go from a fearless spine surgeon to crippling anxiety and chronic pain? I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Nothing. True. But it turns out that I was an expert at suppressing my thoughts, right? That's how you become a surgeon. I was excellent I was an expert at suppressing stress yes and but my body chemistry but again my ears were ringing my feet were burning I don't know why I didn't feel anxiety but my body chemistry was way off but there's a book called sapiens that makes a really succinct statement at the end of the book that human beings sense a well-being really depends on your body's chemistry again when you feel stress chemicals you don't feel so good and then when you are relaxed, you feel great. Like we said earlier, we have, you have a wonderful body chemical makeup. That's where your sense of well-being comes in. And that's a total bodily response, which really is not psychological. The other thing, and I'm open to suggestions on this one, is that I think medicine has really done a disservice to people in that we've separated the mind and the body, right? Right, right. Well, just think about this for a second. There are 50 trillion cells in the human body, 50 trillion. There are 80 billion nerve cells in the brain. The estimate is that the connections, the dendrites between these nerve cells are more numerous than stars in the universe on every human being. There are 1 million pain fibers in the soft tissue per square inch in the body. Think about trying to fly a Boeing 747 jet without a computer. It's not going to work, right? right? It's not possible. Yeah. Think about trying to conduct an orchestra without music or a conductor. That's not going to work either, right? Mm. The human body is the same thing. It's way more complex than a Boeing jet plane. I mean, infinitely more complex. I would say, let's say a trillion times more complex than a Boeing plane. But that's not even close. 
how complex the human body is, right? <laughs> right. You're not, so the nervous system is just the pro, it's just a unit. In other words, you can't, we survive on this planet by processing sensory input, right? Mm. Our eyes, our ears, you know, everything's processing sensory input. Our nervous system then directs traffic to keep us safe. But again, you, the nervous system can conduct business without sensors. And then, this, then the human body couldn't function without the brain interpreting the sensations. It's just a unit response. It's just a unit. And I'm trying to come up with a term about if you feel pleasure, that's a bodily response. It's not an intellectual exercise. Your body has a rush of pleasure chemicals. Your brain interprets those as pleasurable. But it's that chemical. I mean, a computer doesn't feel pleasure like, like a human brain does. I mean, we don't think it does. I mean, I think it's unlikely that a computer senses emotions and pleasure like a human brain does. But it's that chemical bath that the body lives in that determines your sense of well-being or not. But when you're triggered, let's go back to the family issues. And again, I'm, I would love to do another podcast with you because we haven't really remotely touched on the family issues. The, but the key issue, I think we made the point, is that, that the triggers are a big deal. And the, and the trigger just means that if something in your current environment resembles something in the past, Whereas in your family, your spouse or child or partner says something that will have said that that was similar to what your parents said or did when you were a kid. Guess what? Your body says danger, chemical response, and you're triggered. Often that trigger is anger. Again, that unconscious survival reaction is a million times stronger than the conscious brain. That's why when I went to a psychologist or a psychiatrist for 13 solid years, it's a million to one ratio. There's no chance of a psychological intervention alone solving the problem. Although I'm a strong fan of psychologists, I'm a strong fan of psychiatrists because they, they can provide guidance, support, and wisdom, but they're not going to provide the solution. The solution is finding ways to improve your body's chemistry. But going back to that one part where we left off as far as the third rule, remember the first one, everybody involved in the process, look at the website and the book individually. The second rule is don't discuss your pain. The third rule is just remember when things were fun. Because when you have strong, close family ties, that's you know, oxytocin, the love drug, the bonding drug is right there. And so there's a deep sense of safety and wellness that can occur that unfortunately when you're triggered, it goes the opposite direction. But it's fascinating that when I ask couples or families just to take an hour to talk about things that were really, really fun, they can't do it. They're often so angry, so frustrated, so triggered, they actually can't do that. But at some point, once they work through the process, it may take a week or two or a month or two, but they'll sit down and really remember when things were fun. And it's not positive thinking, it's connecting to that part of the brain that already is. Remember, to solve chronic pain, you create a separate nervous system like learning a new language. When it comes to memories that are play memories, you're connecting to the part of the brain that, that already exists. You don't have to make this up. Then the final step is that I ask people when they have talked about their pain, that they commit to making the house a safe house, that you make a resolution that if you get triggered, anxiety, frustration, you get into an argument or fight that has to go outside. And that's what we talk about in some more detail in the next podcast is how that actually works in real life. But you commit to making your home a safe house. 
Right. Under no circumstances do you argue or fight in the house. I had one nurse who had two teenagers who used to fight all the time. I don't know the long-term outcome of this yet. It's still in, still in progress, but she heard my lecture. She heard the concepts. Her kids get into a fight, and she had a hard day at work. She has a right to come home and feel safe and enjoy the TV, dinner, whatever it is. Right. She just sent the kids to the garage. They get to fight in the garage. So if you have to argue or fight, take it outside. <laughs> Well, it'd make the house quieter, wouldn't it? <laughs> Watch TV in peace. <laughs> but but all of us have all of us have a right to do this, right? We all have a right to go home and enjoy our home. Yeah. Nobody has a right. Nobody has a right to take that away from us. That's right. That's quite nice. Do you find there's a difference in cultures and different you know people that come from different countries where they have a different um, they don't they don't have this problem with chronic pain or so much of a problem with chronic pain um, because by inherently they have this um, home uh, safe haven view and attitude. I disagree. I mean, I've become pretty darn safe. I mean, th first of all, 100% of people trigger each other at some level. Okay. They just do. It's not, I mean, it may not be it's just worse in chronic pain in households, but by definition, you have family patterns that you learn from your parents that play out in your new family every couple, every time. Now, if you're not being triggered, it's one of two things. You're so angry, you're not interacting, or you never really interacted in the first place. But in real relationships, people trigger each other. And the problem is, with, it's like chronic pain is the repetition of negatives that actually blows marriages apart. Mm -hmm. I wrote a website post called Happily Ever After, and what destroys relationships is not logical. It's a neurological trick. It's like a reverse magnet effect, is that you have a, a life together, common interests, friends, family, investments, a house together. Why would, not, why would not that be the best thing in the world that continues to thrive? It's because of these neurological triggers that are so powerful, again, a million times stronger than the conscious brain that just blows it all up. Sure. That's why you have to make arbitrary rules in the household. It's like literally breaking up two boxers in a ring that are clutching each other. Just stop. <laughs> you know, really, well, if you an argument or a fight, nothing gets solved, right? It's a big right. boxing match. It's like a cosmic boxing mask. So you just have to break it up. Done. Now, my wife and I get to struggle with this too. We trigger the hell out of each other. We do it. and But we both understand the rules. We both understand the neurological nature of pain. We both do the, the expressive writing exercises we've talked about. We don't let each other complain. I don't complain about my knees or hips to her. I don't like it some days. Some days are horrible. Some days are great. We understand that we're, when we're angry with each other, if she upsets me, it's not me, it's her. In other words, I'm sorry, it's not her, it's me. In other words, she triggered a neurological response in me that resembled something from my past. It has nothing to do with her. We both own our own anger. Even though it still feels like her, I realize that it's me. And we're a work in progress. But I would say the last 18 months, since we really realized this through our Omega workshops, that um, we're doing, we're just, we're doing much, much better. We're, we're thriving. You don't go to the garage so often now. <laughs> right. right, right. The things that you discussed are so simple, and everyone can do it. Pardon? The things that we've discussed, anyone can do this. Yeah, but honestly, just remember that these reactions, when you're arguing or fighting, you're in this unconscious part of the brain that's not solvable with conscious means. You just have to stop. And the problem is people say, well, it feels good to fight. Not, I mean, but it's destructive. I mean, 
words said in anger are destructive. Mm. They only damage relationships. And then I look at a lot of these parents also tee off on their kids. And I love to talk about this in our next podcast about how parents basically program their own triggers in their kids. But you have this beautiful baby. You do anything for this baby. Yet this, um, yet this beautiful baby, you know, 10 years later is also a, all of a sudden a target about curfews and all sorts of stuff. And you get these endless fights. It's not logical. It makes no sense to have this beautiful baby that you do anything for. Even as a teenager, you probably would die for your child. But they become targets. It makes no sense, right? right. It only makes sense. It only makes sense if you understand. Okay, your parents program reactions in you. That you that you now program into your kids. But now your kids become your own triggers. And the last person you should ever argue or fight with would be your spouse or your kids, ever. And I will say with my child, it's a bit of a story. I love to talk about parenting also. But the book out called Parent Effectiveness Training. It's a classic. Number one book I've read in my entire life. I swear to God, my kid never officially got punished. We taught in terms of human to human, not parent child. We took the labels off. He went through his usual share of stuff. It's not about permissive parenting. It's about clear communication boundaries, et cetera. And it just made parenting remarkably enjoyable. But anyway, I loved, I think if you're interested, I'd love to have another podcast where we just go right into the family rules, dynamics, what you actually do in real time with the family issues. I would love to discuss this book called, again, I highly recommend this book called Parent Effectiveness Training by Dr. Thomas Gordon, remarkable book on parenting. If you go to my website, backincontrol.com, there's stage one has five steps. One is learning about pain. Then there's the expressive writing relaxation techniques, sleep, not discussing your pain. Those are the five steps. But right below that, it says click this link to begin your healing journey with your family. It opens up to a, opens up into a huge part of the website about the family issues. And again, the family triggers are the strongest one keeping people in pain. But if you flip the switch, start creating the structure around anger and frustration around pain, we've seen the fastest turnarounds you can imagine in relationship to pain. It's been it's been unbelievable. And that's why I'm so excited about it. I'm I'm writing this book right now called Do You Really Need Spine Surgeon? A Surgeon's Surprising Advice. And then the next book I'm writing after that is going to be basically healing your family's chronic pain. But yeah. the family issues are huge. But I'm gonna write I'm gonna write an entire book about that. Fantastic. Well um good luck with those two books and thank you so much for coming on to our show. Now we may have you on again to discuss the fam, more the family aspects of chronic pain, as you suggest. Uh, right. Something you wanted to hit off early, something about going off into the garage again with boxing gloves. So I'll leave you to your, your afternoon. Right. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for all these uh, pearls of wisdom that you've partaken to us. Yeah, no, you're welcome. And I really enjoyed this. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.